I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. Behind the glass, Jerry is here. Shanalee Vidal is here. Bob Irving is in for Kelly Moore today. We'll hear from him at 625, and he will join us at 645 as we gather the roundtable to have coffee and talk. And there is indeed a lot to talk about today, Greg, uh, particularly with the uh, Raymond Cormier verdict, which uh, last night I was out at Festival du Voyageur, and I was there at 6 o'clock. So, and I was talking to some people who hadn't heard what the verdict was. And when I told them how, what the verdict was, not guilty, uh, shock. And I think that that is the rea- going to be the reaction for many across not just Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, but around the world as well, because it is a story that's gained international headlines. We've seen the headline on BBC.com, amongst other international news outlets. Uh, surprise, shock, disappointment. You can use the superlative that works best for you. Uh, disappointment, I, I would think, would be the one that works for me the most, because regardless of how you look at this trial, independent of everything else, that's going on in our community right now as it pertains to missing and murdered Indigenous women. Tina Fontaine was a shining light in that conversation. And regardless of Raymond Cormier's guilt or innocence, yesterday it was ruled by a jury, innocent, the individual who killed Tina Fontaine walks among us. Mm-hmm. And so that's problematic for me as it pertains to any sort of crime. And it's just highlighted when you realize that a 15-year-old girl was murdered in our city and we have not have yet to lock up the person that's done it. Yeah, and the, uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous Women's uh, National Inquiry uh, is going to be in Winnipeg. This weekend at the Thunderbird House, listening to organizations who have legal standing for the National Inquiry. So the timing of that um, is, uh, you know, just so coincidental. And uh, it is unfortunate, and particularly as you look to just what recently happened in Saskatchewan with the Bushy situation, the anger that came out of that and I'm sure that uh, that anger will be amplified as well today and by me saying that, that is not, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say it, I'm, I'm reluctant to offer any kind of an opinion on this because that this is our justice system, but I'm reluctant because I don't want anything I say like on that to sound disrespectful to the family, to anybody who is close to Tina Fontaine. Um, but that's, that's our justice system, right? He was found not guilty. And what can I say about that? I wasn't in the courtroom. I'm not involved. I was not a police officer. I was not a a lawyer involved in this. I'm just an observer on the sideline. As a member of the public, I think you have a reasonable expectation. At least I believe we should have a reasonable expectation when someone is arrested, charged, and put on trial for a crime that there is some evidence that connects that person to the crime. And that evidence, most of us, I think, believe should be strong enough to win a conviction. Otherwise, why was this person arrested? Why did a pretrial hearing result in the approval to go ahead with a full-blown trial? And if you're a family member and you are looking for justice in the name of someone that you loved and cared for, and you are going through the emotional roller coaster of a trial, you must have some, I 
I believe you're entitled to some expectation that that trial, more likely than not, will result in a conviction. Court is not a flip of a coin. Yeah. Right? There's a preponderance of evidence to, to even get it to trial. And I, and I think that that is the other side or part of this conversation that I'm trying to wrap my head around, that we can go this far and halfway through this trial, a lot of people were looking at each other and go, boy, this is pretty thin. You know, we've been saying it in the news that the a majority of the evidence was circumstantial, regardless of the Cormier, the tape that police took as a confession. There are a lot of pieces here, and it's not just specific to this case about how do we get justice in a variety of different cases. And I think this has been magnified based on the verdict yesterday. Well, and how often do we hear of cases where, pardon me, where the cause of death is can't be determined? Mm-hmm. That's not something that I think I've, I don't want to say ever heard, but certainly in a, in a case it's of... It's unusual, right? It, yeah, it's of a, in a high-profile case like this to, to know that they're, they can't determine the cause of death. When you see that and then you see that there's no DNA evidence, you wonder, well... How did what we have they get got? Here? Yeah, how did we get here? Can I read? Do we have time to read a, an email here? Uh, I got this uh, very early this morning, late last night. I'm a white Canadian from Winnipeg, for the record, and I would like to say the following. The frustrations piling out from the Indigenous leaders on the courthouse steps earlier yesterday may have been tainted by the exasperating not guilty verdict of Ray Cormier. However, the real frustration in their voices and words is the factual inequality all Indigenous people face in Canada. They, and I would like to think most in Canada, want someone to be held accountable for the loss of Tina Fontaine, even if it allows for hope that the country Indigenous people call home is just and believes their people have the same worth as everyone in Canada. No matter what the reasons are, and there are many, with plenty of blame to go around, Indigenous women and girls are murdered and missing at an unacceptable rate with an alarming lack of justice. It is an inescapable truth that Indigenous people in Canada are marginalized, and if we as a country don't look within ourselves to bring about real change, eventually there will be anarchy in the streets and an ethnic war. All you have to do is look at other areas of the world where ethnic minorities have been neglected and you will see the predictable outcomes. It will take all of Canada to bring about this change and God help us if we don't. And there is, uh, just a reminder as well, there is a walk in honour of Tina Fontaine happening this morning starting at 10.30. It will start outside the law courts at 408 York Avenue. It's going to go until 2.30 as they march, uh, walk towards the forks. Typically at this time, Greg Mackling welcomes us back, but right now, <laughs> Greg, has, Greg's panicking right now. Greg has his, his face buried in his hands because we've just learned something from, from Pyeongchang. What have we learned, Greg? <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> Germany's ahead of Canada, one nothing. First period, five minutes left. I can't even speak. <laughs> it's the semifinal of the men's hockey. Oh, man, uh, no, man. <laughs> so I'm not laughing at the. I'm laughing at how how scared you are. It's the well, first period. It doesn't matter. We're just about to talk about the fact that there will be no bronze medal for Kevin Cooey. 
They fell 7-5 to Team Switzerland. Uh, I don't even know if it was yesterday, tomorrow, last night, with all the time changes. The, the point is that there's no medal for Cooey, no medal for Rachel Holman, and that means this will be the first time since curling returned to the Winter Games in 1998 that Canadian teams didn't finish on the podium in both the men's and women's events. Of course, John Morris and Caitlin Laws did win the mixed doubles gold in that sport in the debut uh, in the Olympics in Pyeongchang. It would have seemed, Brett, that Americans have fallen in love with curling over the neck over the last few weeks. Uh, but we can't even answer the most basic question, it seems. Scientists, physicists in particular, still don't know what puts the curl in curling. And I don't know if I'm more fascinated <laughs> at that fact or the fact that physicists are spending their time trying to find out. Well, in an article from The New Yorker, Alan Burdick ponders this scientific mystery, and he joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Burdick, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you both. Well, uh, Alan, thanks for taking some time with us. This is a fascinating article in The New Yorker, and uh, I've tweeted it out, uh, GMAC. Uh, WPG on my Twitter account, but if you'd like me to email it to you, send me an email, gmac at cjob.com or to brett at cjob.com, and we'll get you this fascinating article. Uh, like I said, what's fascinating as anything is the fact that physicists are, are studying what puts the curl in curling. Isn't it rather simple? Uh, you would think, you would think, but there are actually a, a series of mysteries about curling stones and how they behave. The first one being why it curls in the direction that it does. So uh, do you want me to, you want me to explain? Yeah, please. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the, the bottom of a curling stone, you may know this is actually concave. So the part that touches the ice is actually like a ring of stone. It's very much like the bottom of a beer bottle. And if on dry land, you take a beer bottle and you spin it clockwise down a table uh, we all do this, right? Uh, <laughs> it, 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 spins, <laughs> it spins clockwise and it curls to the left. Uh, and and there's a physicists understand that basically what happens is the beer bottle tips forward slightly, so there's a little more uh, weight on the front edge. So as the front edge turns right, there's more friction force pushing back to the left. Uh, and, and so overall, there's more friction force now pushing to the left, and the whole thing moves to the left. Uh, on ice, when you have a curling stone turning to the right, rotating to the right, it actually curls to the right. So it does exactly the opposite of what a beer bottle does. Um, and that is mystery number one. It's, it's, as far as physicists are concerned, it's totally bizarre. So um, it, it, it is essentially counter countervailing uh, to the to the most accepted rules of physics, so to speak. Well, certainly the, the accepted rules of physics on dry on dry land. Okay. Uh, or or on, on on a dry surface. Okay, fair there's enough. Something about the, there's there's something about the ice. There's something about the fact that the bottom of the stone is rough. You know, they've got these they sand the bottoms of their stones to make them rough, and that the ice itself is rough. You know, it's it's pebbled. It's not like totally smooth ice like like hockey is. Um, uh, and and so what at least a, an initial set of theories was is that you know a, a beer bottle spins uh, to the left because uh, as it goes forward, there's more friction on the front. Than, than in the back. So the thinking in physics was, 
Well, on, in curling, there must now be more uh, friction in the back than in the front. Um, how could that be? Maybe as the curling stone goes forward and puts more weight on the front, it, it sort of warms the ice a little bit and creates uh, a thin layer of water that moves to the back as the stone uh, rotates, um, and that reduces uh, the friction essentially in the front, um, puts a little more on the back, and enables the whole stone to move to the right. Um, sounds really great. The problem is, is when you do the math, it just doesn't generate enough force it, maybe it moves the curl uh, the stone to the right, but it doesn't move it as far as uh, as it needs to go. Essentially, in curling, a, a stone can curl as much as a, a meter and a half either to the right or to the left. And this kind of asymmetric friction uh, theory just doesn't generate that much force. So not only does it not make a lot of sense for a lot of people to spend any time watching and or playing curling. <laughs> the game itself and how the rocks actually move still doesn't make a lot of sense to some of the smartest people on the planet. This is what I'm gathering. Uh, yes, but there are some of the smartest people on uh, on the planet are thinking very hard about this. The latest theory is that uh, what happens is as, as the stone curls, it actually kind of catches a little bit on every single microscopic pebble on the ice that it encounters. And as it encounters it, it, it tries to turn around it. Have you ever used like a circular saw on a piece of wood? And sometimes it binds on the on something in the wood and it, and it catches. Sure. And it sort of like lurches forward and tries to rotate around uh, whatever it's binding on. So the, the theory now is that uh, that's kind of what's happening uh, with the curling stone. As it, as it turns, it catches on these little pebbles on the ice and, and is, is rotating around them. Uh, and, and that rotation around them is is pushing it uh, to the right, you know, in, in the direction of rotation. Alan Burdick is our guest. He is with The New Yorker, wrote an article, Physicists Still Don't Know What Puts the Curl in Curling. Wouldn't this be kind of similar to what a bowling ball does? You, you, you tell it to spin one way, and that's the way that it spins? Um, uh, it, it, I'm no physicist myself. I mean, I think there's a big difference between what happens on a dry surface like a bowling lane and uh, what happens on a on a um, icy surface. The, the physics of, of friction are quite different in in both uh, in, in the two situations. Um, also, what's weird about curling stones is that if it rotates twice or if it rotates twenty times as it goes down, uh, you know, as it goes down its lane. Um, it will curl by the same amount. So there's, it has to rotate to curl, but there doesn't seem to be any direct relationship between the number of times it curls and how, I mean, the number of times it rotates and how far it curls, which is kind of strange. Well, Alan, uh, we could probably talk about this for three or four hours and not, you know, get anywhere. But this is fascinating stuff. As I mentioned, physicists, here's the headline, still don't know what puts the curl in curling. Alan Burdick has been our guest. He wrote this article for The New Yorker. And uh, Alan, thank you to all the physicists and scientists who are studying this. And thank you to you for bringing this to our attention and joining us this morning. And my pleasure. We got we got to think about something while we watch curling. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again. All right, Alan Burdick joining us from the New Yorker. 
nothing like having a legend in the studio. He's telling us all the stories about hey, the you're good welcome. old days. Hey, you're welcome. Glad to be here as <laughs> yeah, yeah, not you, Jeff. No, I'm sorry. Bob Irving joins us this morning. Bob, did you get up out of bed okay this morning? Or? I don't talk about the old days because nobody's old enough to remember the old days the way I do, so I don't bring it up. Yeah, no, it was easy to get up. Yeah, the last yeah. story you were telling us was in black and white. That was pretty good. Oh, enjoyed it. It was great. Oh, oh. I didn't come in here for abuse. I came in here to... <laughs> I don't know why I came in here. As a matter of fact. <laughs> well, if you were thinking you were for today, it's the thing that's we right, do. That's right. The person sitting in that seat generally the is the senior chair. member of yeah. the team. So uh, great to have you aboard, Bob. You tweeted something yesterday that caught the attention. Your tweets do really well. You're catching on to this Twitter thing, Bob. Take, I'm working at it. Yeah. Take, take a deep breath, Canadian curling fans. There's nothing wrong with our Olympic selection process. Other countries now have really good teams. We don't win by divine right. Stuff happens. There's stuff happening right now in South yeah. Korea. It's one nothing Germany f- f- over Canada in the first period of the semifinal. And the German goal was scored by a Winnipegger, Brooks Masick, who plays in the German League. He's the leading scorer in the German League. Oh, look at that. And uh, so Germany's up one nothing. Canada had a lot of chances early in the game, couldn't score. Uh, but it's only one period, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. see how those uh, Canadian guys who were thrown together in the last six weeks from various parts of Europe make out. Now, on the other hand, there was a team that played for almost years together, the yeah. uh, the, the women's hockey team who lost to uh, Team USA in a shootout. We debated the validity of the shootout uh, to stinks. end a competition. Yeah. Uh, totally agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, in particular, though, a lot of attention, we did not talk about this yesterday, was focused on Manitoban Jocelyn LaRock from St. Anne, Manitoba, who took off her silver medal after it was placed around her neck. Now, LaRock has apologized, saying she meant no disrespect and that her emotions got the better of her. Why didn't LaRock get the same sort of treatment as that young Swedish player at the World Junior Hockey Championships? Granted, LaRock did not throw her medal into the stands, (laughs) but it was a similar sort of action. Well, you know, they present the medals within minutes after the game ends, and the emotions that uh, the, the Canadian women were feeling, we can only imagine. They were running very high. I was watching the medal presentation, and as soon as they put it around her neck and she took it off, my thought was, uh-oh, you're going to hear about that. <laughs> you're going to hear about that. But look, it's, you know, so she made a mistake. She's apologized. She said, I was very emotional. And so that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. What we have to remember about the women hockey players is they prepare for the Olympics for four years. This Canadian men's team was thrown together, as I said. And when the NHLers go over, they're kind of thrown together. And they have other things in their lives to play for. But these women compete for spots on this team for four years. And then when they get there, this is the culmination of four years of preparation. And their sole goal, their sole outlet for hockey was to play for Canada in the Olympics. And so when it, when it doesn't end the way you want it to, I think we can only imagine how tough it is. Well, and a lot of these women play in other... Uh, play in other hockey leagues, though, don't, do they not? They play in North American pro leagues, but they don't play a lot of games in, in those leagues. And they're kind of under the radar sort of thing, yeah. But but their reason for being is to play for Canada in the Olympics. And the same with the American women. Uh, so I, I just think it's it's understandable 
when they don't win the gold, that they're just they're they're crushed, they're destroyed. Okay, so Brett has had an incredible take on this with regards to curling, and if you don't get the gold medal, don't come home. He's been very vocal about that. But what would what would Rachel Holman and Kevin Cooey do for a silver or even a bronze medal now, Shanley? In retrospect, uh, maybe just getting on the podium is an ad- admirable accomplishment. No, exactly, and that's what I think. Like, yes, yeah, silver's probably not looking. Looking so bad to those curlers right now. And of course, with, with the whole hockey team, like it was still it was still a win, even though they're very much seeing it as a loss. And that's but it's all of those emotions right away, right? That's four years of building up to that. And and they're getting those medals right after it happens. So I think a few months from now, they're gonna be looking at that silver medal differently. And how I look at the whole thing, I'm I'm looking at it, I'm looking at all the medal counts in Canada. With looking at overall counts, we're at 27. We're in second place for overall medal counts. We're in third place for gold. We're behind Germany because they have three more gold than us. So we're in second or third place, no matter how you look at it. The important thing, doesn't matter if we're in second place or third place, the important thing that matters is that we're in front of the USA. That's the only thing that matters. <laughs> Very eloquently put, Shanley Vidal. The, the Olympics have been bringing people together, strangers, friends, uh, strangers becoming friends, Jeff Yeah, Braun. I have a, a neighbor, a guy that lives beside me, he locked himself out of his running van and his condo at the same time the other night. That's quite a feat. It was. It was an impressive to- <laughs> tale. Was that an Olympic sport? <laughs> I don't know. So uh, he's sitting on my couch waiting for the locksmiths to show up, and about, a, about an hour to kill, and I don't know, I was just making friends on a 9 o'clock on a Sunday night isn't something I was, like, really up for, but so, so we watched some <laughs> ice dancing together, and we both had a we're, neither one of us really watched ice dancing before, I don't think, but we were quite impressed with it, and <laughs> it helped pass the time. I once locked myself out of a house that I was house-sitting for, when, uh, and there was a dog inside who needed to go out, so oh my I, God. I had to call a locksmith for that. That was fun and embarrassing. Oh, my word. <laughs> last time I house-sit for, for anybody. <laughs> you didn't put that on your resume after that? No. Uh, Jerry, behind the glass, Jerry, uh, the Olympics overall, I mean, if you add those two curling medals we should have had as I grind and grip my teeth, we're uh, looking at with a hockey medal for the men, 30 medals, but uh, I don't That's know if we can crazy. achieve that. Yeah, it is crazy. That's crazy good, and I I am just amazed at all the medals that we're getting, and the fact that we're not getting the medals in the mainstream, and, and I use air quotes because they work so well on radio, the mainstream <laughs> sports that we expect to get to the gold medals in, you know what? That doesn't really matter because look at all the other medals. Yeah, I mean, just looking, the ski cross is on right now. We had Canadians finish. Was it 1-2, Bob? Yeah. And they are best friends, no less. That's yep. kind of neat. Training partners. Yeah, it was, a, it was a cool story. This is the beauty of the Olympics for me is the stories behind some of these athletes. And I, and I go back to the four years that they prepare. And there's World Cup circuits for all of these things, which nobody gives a rip about during the four years between the games. <laughs> but when the games come around, then you hear about all these things, and it's really neat. Was it the Germans and the Canadians that tied for a gold medal in, in bobsleigh? The, the two-man bobsleigh, yeah. yeah. And they were hugging each other and celebrating all four of them together, right? And these are the types of things that, that define the Olympics for me. Yeah, in bobsleigh, it's like you're never competing against anybody at the same time. So right, I of guess course. that's a sort of a, a tight community. Yep. They should do that, though. Throw two of those sleighs on the track at once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
we're fielding your comments on our top story of the day at 780-6868 and also via email gmac at cgob and brett at cgob.com. Reaction poured in as Raymond Cormier was found not guilty of second-degree murder in the death of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine. Global News anchor Tristan Field-Jones has more. Not once do our people ever get justice. I have 10 murder, 2 missing, and to this day we don't have justice. Anger. Let's find solutions. This should not happen, not in this day and age. We have many great minds around this country. Frustration. The system has failed our people. We need to correct that. We need to right that for all indigenous people in this world. Grief. Let's send our love to Tina because that's where our love needs to be right now, with Tina and the family. It was an emotional day inside and outside the courtroom. Reaction to the verdict was swift and intense. Arlen Dumas, the Grand Chief for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, says this outcome is unacceptable. It's time to take action. Every single person, from the person in the living room to the person at work right now, to the ones who are in different countries, we all have to come together and focus on solutions. Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief Kevin Hart says everyone in Canadian society shares part of the blame for what happened to Tina Fontaine. Where is reconciliation really happening right now in this country when it comes to the First Nation or the Indigenous people? We are continually marginalized. We live in third world conditions. You set us up for failure right from the start and take our children away. And this is one of the perfect examples of our children being taken away. For us as leaders, yes, we're upset. We're upset with the system. We as leaders continue to try to advocate for our people and the that we're elected by to represent, it's hard to advocate when you have people not willing to listen to you. Meanwhile, MKO Grand Chief Sheila North Wilson says she's left with many unanswered questions. Someone's still out there responsible for taking her life, including all of the systems that were involved in her life, from everything from child and child welfare to the policing, to the poverty levels that her and her family were subjected to. But there is someone or somebody or some people responsible for physically taking her life and this is not over. We must now turn around and go find out what happened to her. We have to do that as a society. If it wasn't him, then who was it? We want to know. Winnipeg police released a statement a few hours after the verdict was read. Although their comments were limited, since an appeal is possible, police did say their thoughts are with everyone impacted by the tragedy. Mayor Brian Bowman also issued a statement saying, quote, The death of this young woman, bright, full of promise, but at the same time vulnerable and in need of protection, was a tragedy. Bowman says there have been positive steps forward when it comes to reconciliation, but a lot of work still needs to be done. And that will take time. Thank you, Tristan. Um, this morning, a walk in honor of Tina Fontaine will take place. It starts at the Manitoba Law Courts at 408 York Avenue. Once again, that starts at 10.30 this morning. And MKO Grand Chief she- Sheila North Wilson echoed something that I can't get out of my head, Brett, and it's the question I'm asking. And I don't care if you're of Indigenous descent or not. The question has to be... Who did this? A 15-year-old girl was murdered in our city, dumped in the Red River, and the person that did that walks among us, walks amongst us. And that should bother every single one of us. We should want to know the answer. We should want justice. 
for Tina, for all of us to know, to have that person off our streets. Brett and Greg with you. Indigenous leaders are calling for change to the social safety net system after a Winnipeg jury found Raymond Cormier not guilty yesterday in the 2014 death of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine. Fontaine had become caught up in a web of sexual exploitation before her disappearance and death. Kevin Hart, the Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for Manitoba, says Tina was failed by the province's social services and the city's police. Supporters of Tina Fontaine plan to hold a walk in Winnipeg today to honour the teenager. It's starting at 10.30 outside the law courts. Global News reporter Brittany Greenslade has been following this case. She joined us at 6.15. She joins us once again on 680 CJOB. And Brittany, we spoke earlier about reaction, the emotion before the verdict was read, reaction when the verdict verdict was read and afterward. And I guess we're wondering now, where might this go? Is there a potential appeal in the offing? Well, the Crown hasn't said whether or not they do plan to appeal, but knowing that this case was largely based on circumstantial evidence and knowing that they've already seen that not guilty verdict, it's doubtful we will see an appeal, but that's not to say that there isn't one coming. Uh, Crown attorneys will often take into account speaking to family members uh, in that situation. Um, a lot of family members just saying now they want justice, whatever that looks like right now, um, knowing that there this was a largely circumstantial case. There was no forensics. There was no DNA evidence, uh, making it a very tough case for Crown attorneys to win. Brittany, was it ever explained in the trial or did Crown attorneys try to explain the non-existence of DNA evidence or did they just simply ignore the fact that it did not exist in the first place? Uh, Curious about that. It was definitely brought up. We heard from experts because of the way Tina Fontaine's body was found and being in the river for, you know, up to 10 days. One expert saying it's not unlikely that there was no DNA evidence there. Um, Even when they were making up DNA profiles of Fontaine herself, they took it from various swabs of her body. um, And they were only able to make that DNA profile from a swab inside her mouth. Um, not even from some of the other areas where you would normally be able to find that DNA profile. So not being able to find a profile of a secondary person on her body didn't mean that there wasn't somebody there that she didn't die at the hands of another. Um, And experts saying that whole time, being in the water for up to 10 days, not you know, unrealistic that we didn't see any forensic evidence. Brittany, we're also hearing talk that we could see a, a civil lawsuit come out of this. Have you heard anything similar to that? We haven't heard a lot now. Right now, last night, it was really just people trying to take in that verdict. Um, family members, only a couple really came out. We didn't even get to speak to Thelma Favel herself, uh, who was, of course, Tina Fontaine's great aunt and raised her since she was four years old. But nothing's impossible. We've seen that in every case. Um, these really can go anyway. And especially when emotions are that high, it's not impossible to say that there could be a civil case. The, the, the handful of words that stuck out for me from MKO Grand Chief Sheila North Wilson was the fact that someone is, uh, is out there um, that did this to Tina Fontaine. And the, I think that's the fact that all of us have to wrap our head around. Yeah, and, and we heard it from all of those leaders saying, um, if it wasn't Raymond Cormier, who was it? Um, We heard from leaders saying possibly this case was rushed um, because we knew that there was 
a lot of emotion around this across the country. People wanting to find out who it was that killed Tina Fontaine. Winnipeg police saying they took their time on this investigation. We saw um, a statement from them last night saying that this was not a rushed investigation. They they were thorough, um, but ultimately somebody killed Tina Fontaine, and, and we heard that from Sheila North Wilson. There's no denying that. Um, but really right now saying that we need to find out and, and move forward with making change, making change in the systems, um, because we know that there was a breakdown with the CFS system here. We know there was a number of breakdowns when it came to Tina Fontaine along the way. There were a number of people that could have done better. And it's really now going back and saying, let's make those changes so this doesn't happen again to another young girl. Global News reporter Brittany Greenslade, thank you so much for joining us once again on 680 CJOB this morning. Mackling and McGarry with you. Plenty of emotion across the province this morning and last night, across the country. A jury has acquitted Raymond Cormier of the second-degree murder of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine. Reaction to the verdict has been pouring in from Indigenous and political leaders across Canada. And last night, MLA for St. John's Nahini Fontaine posted this on Facebook. Why can't I stop crying? Because Tina Fontaine was not only our collective daughter, or our shared relatives stolen, defiled, murdered, bound, weighed down with rocks, and tossed into a muddy river. She represents all missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls across Canada. If she, as an, as an exemplar victim, can't get justice, who can? Mahaney Fontaine is also a longtime advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and served as a special advisor on Aboriginal women's issues for the Indigenous Issues Committee of Cabinet, or in the Cabinet of Manitoba. She joins us live in studio here on 680 CJOB. Ms. Fontaine, thank you very much for joining us this morning. You've been up since 3 a.m. today? 3 a.m., yeah, yeah. Why have you been up for so many hours? Um, You know, I think that... um, when you do this work for so long and you see, you know, multiple hundreds of families affected by um, the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the endemic violence perpetrated against women and uh, girls' bodies and space. Um, and when you participate in yet another trial, and I have participated in so many, but when you see you know, Thelma, who loved Tina so much, um, literally break down physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually in the court after the not guilty uh, verdict. You can't help but be devastated. And um, you can't help but be disillusioned. And you can't help but be uh, absolutely heartbroken. And so I know that when I got home last night in the safety of my own home, I just broke down and cried and sobbed all night. And you can't really uh, sleep because you just can't believe that this is happening. And why you can't believe that it's happening and it's, you know, I tried to explain it in my post is that here was a little baby that was uh, raped, that was murdered, that was, you know, wrapped up like garbage, that was weighted down with rocks so that her, her poor little body couldn't float back up, and then thrown in the Red River 
uh, she is the quintessential victim. She is the quintessential victim. And last night, we did not see justice for her. And so how can you not be just absolutely heartbroken? Uh, and, and for me, and I know for many, many people across the country, people are absolutely devastated and heartbroken. And more importantly, I think what is um, so important to understand about Tina Fontaine and, and her case is that um, she was a moment where her death and finding her body was a moment where uh, Canadians finally got it, right? We've been talking about this issue for years. In Manitoba, we've been talking about this issue for about 40 years with the death of Helen Betty Osborne. If you look at in BC, some of the most earliest cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls are along the Highway of Tears in the 1950s. So here we are talking about this, and you hope that you can have some semblance of faith and 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 hope and justice. Um, and then when you see uh, yesterday, you kind of just lose lose all hope. You use the terminology "our collective daughter," and I mentioned to you off air that that my firm belief is that until we all see, regardless of whether you're an indigenous or non-Indigenous person in our community, until you see Tina Fontaine as a 15-year-old little girl, a baby in your words, Ms. Fontaine, we're not going to get this. We're not going to be the, the outrage, the anger that needs to permeate through our entire community will not cause the changes that are needed. Mm-hmm. You know, And I, I have to wonder that people are asking questions about and talking about systems. There are several systems in play here that people feel failed. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly I'm not going to sit there and deny that. In fact, uh, most systems failed her, including the CFS system, including when the NDP were in government. Uh, we failed her. And, um, and we should see Tina as our daughter, as our relative. Um, and not only should we see Tina as our daughter and our relative, but actually what most people don't realize or know is that actually 11 years earlier, in almost the exact same spot, the body parts of Felicia Solomon Osborne washed ashore. She was 16, only a year older than Tina. And actually, in July of 2003, when her body parts were found the next day, uh, what we saw was in the paper, the, the headline was prostitute with gang ties, uh, body parts found. So 11 years earlier, we construct this little baby, another baby, 16 years old, um, in very negative ways. And it, and it situates blame then on Felicia. And... Fast forward to where we are today, and you and you looked at still some of the media coverage in respect to Tina, talking about how she was on drugs, how um, Cormier wanted to have sex with her. He didn't want to have sex with her. He wanted to rape her. You cannot have sex when you're a 52-year-old man with a 15-year-old little girl who's vulnerable, who's marginalized. That is rape. And so when we start using language that situates this within its proper context, we will still have folks that will not see Tina or Felicia 
or Claudette Osborne or Vanessa Briere or Sharice Hill or Hillary Angel Wilson as their daughter or their relative. Nani Fontaine is our guest. She is MLA for St. John's in studio here at 680 CJOB. And you mentioned it, uh, the CFS failed her. Uh, we've heard that uh, from others as well. What do you say to those who are asking the question, what about Tina's family? Where was her family? And in fact, you know, that is a consistent narrative that you hear constantly. So you'll hear people blame families of MMIWG. The families that I know in almost all of the cases that I've worked on, did everything that they could. Families need help and need supports, absolutely. And families are dealing with generations of intergenerational trauma from you know the whole colonial gamut. Tina Fontaine's family, including Thelma, absolutely loved her. They absolutely loved her. And, T- and Thelma reached out for help. She reached out for support because she knew that she needed that support. So I don't buy the argument, what about Tina's family? If you know Thelma, if you know her husband, if you know Tina's sister, if you know her aunties and her uncles and her cousins, if you know the community, they all loved Tina and they all wanted to support Tina. And I completely reject that because, again, what that does is it places blame squarely on the shoulders of Indigenous people, squarely on the shoulders of Indigenous people that are literally just trying to survive and navigate the consequences of colonial colonization here in this country. Today, there will be a a walk in honor of Tina Fontaine, and it will culminate at the Odena Healing Circle and there's a special monument there, one that's very special to you and all too symbolic today, mm-hmm. unfortunately, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, when I was a special advisor on Indigenous women's issues, we worked on a project for about two years to have what was fir- the, the first across the country monument dedication in honor of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And it was a project that I worked on with MMIWG families from Manitoba They had the final um, uh, approval of the design, and she is situated um, literally at the crossroads of the the two rivers, and uh, she looks down into the Odena Circle, but she is there for MMIWG families to represent their loved ones, but she is also there for Manitobans and Canadians and all of our international guests that come to the Forks um, to teach and to and to give honor and awareness to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and and you know when we unveiled her uh, in August of 2014, it it was literally only a couple of days later that Tina Fontaine's body was found. So it was it was very bittersweet. We're also learning uh, just now that there's a, a march, actually a walk being planned in Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, justice for Tina Fontaine being hosted by a group called Decolonize Canadian Schools. So there is a walk once again, as Greg mentioned today, starting at 1030 at the law courts that will go to the Forks. Nahani Fontaine, MLA for St. John's, thank you so much Rich, thank uh, you for, for joining me. us today on 680 CJOB. Mackling McGarry with you. Hey ho!
<laughs> you were celebrating last night, Brett McGarry. I was at the Festival du Voyageur. I love the way you say that, by the way. Uh, that's my French immersion coming out. It was actually, I was heartened to learn that I still understood the French. Really? When Executive Director Dale Nadeau was speaking, when uh, Dan Van Dal was speaking French, I could, I, I could follow along. So I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with them, nor could I have a conversation in French with our guest, Nick Odette, who's marketing and communications with Festival. But I could at least understand if he were to speak French to me. Good morning to you, Nick. Good morning, guys. Bon matin. How are you today? We're doing very well, Nick. And I think you're about to speak a language a lot of Manitobans uh, can comprehend. Uh, The idea of a thank you, the idea of a deal for the final day of Festival. It's going to be glorious weather-wise. Are you sure you know what you're doing here? Exactly, yeah. We're expecting, we're heading into weekend two here at Festival, and things are firing up for the weekend. we got a full day full weekend of programming and activities planned for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we wanted to offer a special deal to everyone. So we're doing a two-for-one sale, actually, for our adult day tickets for for Sunday. But there is a a way that you have to enter a promo code, though, right? Exactly, yeah. So tickets are on sale on our website at heyho.ca, which is H-E-H-O.ca. And all people have to do is check out our website, enter two tickets in their cart, and then use H-E-H-O, hey ho, as the promo code there. And uh, they can buy two tickets for the price of one. So for $25, you can get the whole family in the park if your kids are under 12. Uh, that's with that new deal that kids 12 and under get in the park free this year. And that, that, I have not been to the festival, I confess. I have not been since I was a kid. And uh, last night mm-hmm. was, uh, it was nice to, to go back and to see what truly is, uh, it's a winter wonderland. I know that's a cliche, but that's kind of what it felt yeah. like. I felt like I had sort of walked into uh, another world. It is. It's a very beautiful park this year. We've uh, Actually, the sculptures are made of artificial snow, but they look just like real snow. Um, things are looking really good. We've got uh, uh, kids' activities, uh, indoor and outdoor. Uh, the tents are looking really nice. Nice and warm in the tents, by the way. Nice from outside this weekend, apparently. Uh, we've got a full musical lineup, uh, some Voyager Apprentice workshops, a tea soup competition planned for Sunday. Uh, you can visit Fort Gibraltar and see the historic interpretation. Full day of uh, fun and activities, really. Yeah, the Fort Gibraltar, that was fun going into all the various log cabins that surround the main house there. Uh, just seeing the craftsmanship on display was really cool. Uh, and do you have, so the the thing on the Sundays is that it, it, it does it, or does it go into the evening on Saturday as well? Uh, on Saturday until midnight. Sunday is a shorter day though. We go about uh, 10 to 5 o'clock. So we're all done by 5 o'clock on the Sunday. How's attendance been so far throughout uh, this festival? It's been really good. Some of the changes we did this year with uh, admission is uh, free admission for kids 12 and under. So we've seen a, a, a really good spike in attendance, for, especially for younger families and children during the day for the kids' activities. And uh, we're really thrilled with seeing everyone come down. Oh, and we have about 30 seconds left here. I'm just looking. I see Red River Skirmish mm-hmm. Battle reenactment on Sunday. What's that? <laughs> That's always one of my favorite activities, actually. We have the guys from the Compagnie La Vendrie and the uh, Selkirk reenactors that come down and they recreate uh, a skirmish or a, a, a military demonstration or a battle uh, as it would have happened in the 18th century or in the 17th century. So it's always fun to see. Uh, you got your muskets, um, guys in costumes, and they're shooting their guns at each other. It's always 
uh, fun activity for everyone to see, actually. Only in Canada would you do a, a battle reenactment and call it a skirmish. So polite, yeah, so actually, Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Odette, thank you for this. And, uh, well, for a couple more days, at least uh, Bon Festival. Thanks, guys. Bon Festival. Hey-ho. Once again, heyho.ca and the promo code H-E-A-O gets you two-for-one tickets for adults on Sunday. So if you got a family of four, for example, you can get all four in, if the kids are under 12, for $25. That is a steal of the deal. Festival du Voyageur going into its final weekend. One, two, three. How are you this morning, Shanley? I'm, 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 I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. It's, it's, a, it's a very heavy morning. I yeah. think for, for all of us, and, and that's why normally for three things on Fridays, I do three things look forward to this weekend, and my heart wasn't in it, to tell you the truth, So, because um, a lot of people are feeling all of these, these emotions in the wake of that, the, the acquittal of Raymond Cormier, and, and in the murder of, of Tina Fontaine, and um, Mayor Brian Bowman says the system has failed the girl, and more needs to be done to confront the shame and tragedy of Canada's racist treatment of Indigenous people. A lot of people are feeling a lot of things, and so uh, three things that maybe you can you can do to kind of channel some of that that energy. So let's uh, start with one that starts in about two and a half hours' time. Yeah, and that's going to be the walk for Tina Fontaine to celebrate her life, and I believe some of her for family members will be participating in this. So it's going to start at the Law Courts building at 408 York Avenue, it's going to proceed east on York to Israel Asper Way, south on Israel Asper Way to the Forks Market Road, uh, east on Forks Market Road to the, and it's going to end up at the Odena Circle at the Forks for 2 p.m. It is being organized by Manitoba Moon Voices and the Manitoba Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Coalition. There's also, as we just heard, a separate march planned this Saturday in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, and I suspect it won't be the only one no, happening no, across Canada. No, this is something that the whole the whole country is is, is watching. Um, so the, the second thing that you can do to channel that energy is is get up and, and volunteer. There's lots of worthy organizations in our city that do so much to make make a difference. Um, and one of those organizations that I want to point out is the Bear Clan. They like. James Favell and the Bear Clan, they work so tirelessly to patrol our streets in the North End and watch out for, for vulnerable individuals. And they're soon going to be expanding to the West End and to East Selkirk as well. And I know that they would really love so you'd love your help and your support. So if you're interested in volunteering, you can reach them at bearclanmb at hotmail.com. Yeah, and not to mention they're out in the middle of the night. So, you mm-hmm. know, throwing some Tim Hortons uh, gift cards their way, something like that would go a long way in just thanking them for the work that they do in our community just to make all of us a little bit safer. Uh, that is certainly the intention of the work of the Bear Clan. Uh, great suggestions, Shanley. And so for the last thing, now this one makes me really sad. I was actually, um, yeah, I was actually felt all this emotion last night and out of this verdict, but it was because it kind of made me, it made me think of something that I have a personal connection to and that we, you and I were talking about this morning, Greg. Yes. Um, so uh, like so many women and girls have gone missing in, in our province and it's, it's so tragic. And my cousin is one of them. Uh, Kathy Williams went missing 30 years ago. So it's, it's believed that she, she's been murdered, but there's no evidence to go on. There's there's very, very, very little evidence to go on. So from what I gather, she came to Winnipeg from St. Andrews to apply for a job at a parking lot, and then she was she was never heard from again. My word. Yeah, and it's been so long, and the sad part is, like, um, 
you feel that she's been forgotten, right? Because right. there are so many missing people, and and you know, and 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 how do you how do you remember them all, right? And and so I can tell you that the RCMP are still investigating this case, along with all the other missing uh, missing women cases as part of Project Devote. So here's what you what you can do is that you can you can look at those pictures of the the missing women, mm-hmm. and 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 if you you feel you know anything, even the the tiniest shred of information that can make the the huge a huge a huge difference. Um, so contact RCMP if you feel you know anything at all. And I know, like I was telling you, Greg, I feel what I feel really sad about is that um, like this was thirty years ago, and I was I was a child, right? So I right. um, and it was my my dad that the, went who or my dad was the person the newspapers went to when they would they found bones in a haystack. So. Maybe they could be Kathy's. So they went to my dad for an interview to talk about it. it turned out they weren't hers. Um, so my dad has now passed. Uh, her adoptive mother, my great aunt Thelma Williams, has passed. Um, soon there's going to be nobody left to to remember her and to mourn for her. And so, um, you know, if this case ever does get solved, right, there's... Who will have that closure? Closure will never be exactly achieved, right? We know we we've spoken about a lot of the these different cases over the years: Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, Winnipeggers, Manitobans. I can't help but think of the Dirksen family and the fact that when I was uh, when I was just a little boy, when I was a teenager, and, and Candace went missing, and then her body was found. To this day, no one has been brought to justice for that. I think there are a lot of people that if you stop and pause and think about it, there are injustices, things that have happened, uh, not necessarily to people that we know, but there has have been impactful cases and situations in our community where we go, boy, oh boy, justice was not served mm-hmm. there. And if you can try and channel a little bit of that, you can maybe have an idea of what folks were experiencing at the law courts yesterday. Thank you for this, Shanalee. And Shanalee, before you go, and I, I make this comment not to, to make light of anything that we've just discussed, but I want to share this because I think this speaks to the relationship that we here have with you, our listeners here at 680 CJOB. One of our listeners has reached out to you, Kristen, has reached out to you, Shanalee, saying, Shanalee, sounds like she needs to see the lead singer of one of her favorite bands, Jet Set Satellite, wearing a feather boa. And she has, in fact, sent us a picture of the lead singer of Jet Set Satellite wearing a feather boa in an effort to uh, cheer you up a little bit. So I'll keep that open as you march your way around the corner here and on your way out. You can have a look at that. And I'll also tell you this. One of your biggest fans is my little buddy Matthew. That's Matthew's right. celebrating a birthday today. Oh, my goodness. So he would love it if you would wish him a happy oh, birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Matthew. I hope your day is is spectacular and you get lots of awesome presents and cake and, and you just have an amazing day. No awesome presents coming from the Ma- Macklings, Matthew. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, quick, uh, quick draw McGraw, Jerry, with the Jet Set Satellite on 680 CJOB. Uh, revelations uh, that Scott Peterson, a sheriff uh, that was assigned to protect the children outside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Florida, did not enter the building, has absolutely shaken that community, that police force. I don't know if anybody anticipated that 
part of the story of this tragedy coming out. And in the last, oh, 12 to 14 hours, some major corporations are separating themselves from the NRA in light of the and in the shadows of what happened in Parkland, Florida. One of the largest, if not the largest private bank uh, in the United States, First National Bank of Omaha, they are in fact the nation's largest privately owned bank, has said that they will discontinue their branded Visa card program with the NRA and also Enterprise uh, Rent-A-Car. They also own Alamo and National Car Rental has said they will discontinue special offers exclusively for NRA members. So the tide may be turning in terms of the public in the United States, the feeling towards the the power that a lot of people feel the NRA has Mm -hmm. uh, in the political conversation and Does that translate? Does that trickle down? Does that permeate into public safety? So I think that discussion is just beginning. A very powerful site in Sunrise, Florida last night in the very arena that 24 hours previously had hosted a CNN roundtable conversation on violence, on gun control, on the mass a murder of children in schools in America on the in the very same arena the Florida Panthers played their very first home game since that tragedy on Valentine's Day and their goaltender Roberto Luongo spoke on behalf of his teammates I just uh, want to start off by saying that um, I live in Parkland I've been living there for the last 12 years my wife was born and raised in that area my kids go to school in Parkland when I'm done playing hockey, I want to spend the rest of my life in Parkland. I love that city. Last, last week, uh, it was Valentine's Day. I was in Vancouver, and uh, obviously we all know what happened, and it was uh, hard for me to be on the West Coast and not be able to get back home and and protect my family so no child should ever have to go through that it's terrible it's time for us as a community to take action it's enough enough is enough we got to take action to the teachers at the school um, you guys are heroes Uh, protecting your children. Some of them didn't make it trying to protect children and uh, that is truly what a hero is and uh, those people need to be put on a pedestal for the rest of their lives. The last thing I want to say is since last Wednesday I've been watching the news and I've been seeing what the kids from Douglas Stoneman have been doing. And I am very, very proud of you guys. You guys are brave. You guys are an inspiration to all of us. And at the end of the day, you guys are what's giving us hope for the future. Thank you.
The question has to be framed and posed. Brett, are, are we seeing a tipping point in America? Well, you know, when you told me about this earlier, uh, it was about five this morning when Greg says to me, hey, uh, Enterprise is balking on the NRA and this uh, National Bank of Omaha is also uh, doing the same. I thought, are you kidding me? Because the NRA, it's no secret that the NRA has so much power. Five million members. Yeah, they've got so much power uh, from a figurative and literal standpoint when you consider how much firepower they have. But to hear that these large organizations are actually pushing back against the NRA, typically what happens when you see one group do this, you start to see multiple groups do this. This often happens, for example, when uh, an athlete loses an endorsement deal because of some kind of a scandal. Suddenly it's they've lost this endorsement and then you hear they've lost five more. There's like a pile-on effect uh, because companies, A, are maybe they've been waiting for someone to do it. They didn't want to be the first one to dip their toes in the water. And once someone has, in fact, taken that first plunge, then it almost feels like they've got permission to go ahead and do it as well. They don't want to be left in the dust. They don't want to be the last one who's still clinging to the old guard, as it were. So I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a movement, uh, but it's obviously too early to tell. But it's a good start. I think this is a great start. One of our top five favorite guests is in the studio with us. She comes from Edmonton just to see us. That's right. No, she doesn't. <laughs> I do. I like to think so. I do. <laughs> KellyKeen.com is her website, personal finance educator and speaker, author of nine books. What have you done with your life? Uh, she appears on national television across the country, National Steering Committee on Financial Literacy member, consumer advocate, financial planning standards of Canada. Of Canada. Kelly Keene joins us now. And uh, Kelly, great to see you. Great to see you. So I'm only top, I'm top five. Okay, I feel honored. I feel honored. Because you guys have some amazing, five. amazing guests. Well, so. thanks for knowing that. And, uh-huh. and thanks for being one of them. Uh, I've got two headlines that really scare me because when you put them together, it equals yeah. disaster in my mind, financially for senior citizens. Non-mortgage debt among Canadian seniors growing. Okay, that's on one hand. And then I read another article, mortgages make up nearly half of Canadian seniors' debt. Oh, boy. Right? Uh... I know. That, like, I've got nine pages here. It weighs a ton in my yeah. hands. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, this is the time in your life where you don't want to have any debt. You don't, you know, ideally, but w- what's going on? Well, there's, um, you know, epically low interest rates. So there isn't that those double-digit interest rates that maybe were projected for a lot of seniors. So that means that that income just isn't coming in. Um, you're talking about on the investment side. Yeah, on the investment side. Exactly. Yeah, not on the mortgage side. So that just means that they probably weren't able to pay off their debt or they aren't now. Uh, as you said, just before I came in, more and more parents are helping out their kids. I was on a few months ago talking about this with you, another survey that FPSC had out. Um, living longer, how do you plan for the extra life that everyone's living, which is fantastic. Sure. But how do you then, oh boy, it's it's a different it's different times because how do you then plan for maybe uh, times that people took sabbaticals or wanted to travel the world? We look at what the millennials want to do, and you consider their working years. But see, they have a different frame, a, a, a different perspective. That, uh, and I think myself too as a Gen Xer, I, I want to work as long as I can. 
I, I don't want to retire. Uh, so, um, you know, what we're going to talk about right away, too, is something, a, a new concept called Encore Careers that for your brain, for your goodwill, for your energy, for everything, and maybe for your pocketbook, uh, people actually have to work after 65. So there's good and bad to both of that. But um, it's it's a different conversation, you know, like there's no pensions, there's no gold watch, right. there's no, there's right. none of this anymore. So it's a different conversation. Well, you know, I remember when my uh, Grammy and my grandpa burned their mortgage yeah. before they were 60, mm. right? They purchased their house in the 40s and they burned their mortgage yeah. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the early 70s, mid 70s. And then my grandpa worked till he was 65, lived till he was 92. Wow. But he worked for a crown corporation, had a fairly decent pension. But he also had 10 years between the time he paid off his home and the time he retired, right, to sock yeah. money away. And you mentioned double-digit yep. interest rates also, you know, on the way out in terms of mortgages. But he didn't have one. Right. So he's benefiting on the flip side from the amount of money that you're getting 10 11% on your savings account back in the the 80s, right? So yeah. uh, lots, of, lots of changes, as you say. So how does someone who, you know, saw what their parents did go, hey, I want to have that sort of late life like my mom and dad did or my grandma and grandpa and go, oh, uh, Freedom 55 is not oh. really a thing anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, life expectancies were different too. Like, I, I think, you know, some of what you talk about your grandparents was, um, some was typical and some, some was an anomaly sure. because there were so many, and especially with, with men, you know, they retired when they were 62 or 65 or what have you. They had a heart attack or a stroke and died. So I'm sure that there's a lot of your listeners too that are like, yeah, they're bobbing their heads going, sure, we all know someone like that in our life. So it you know number one incentives drive the market so let's talk about a little bit that it's not seniors fault that they're in this predicament i don't think it's canadians faults either because if you know if we had double digit interest rates right now people would not have the debt that they have period we wouldn't have lines of credit we wouldn't be enticed to spend as much as we do which is great for the economy great for politicians Great for for a lot of this, you know, segment over here. But when it comes to you and your finances personally, if interest rates were higher, it would be better for people personally because you'd save and you wouldn't spend as much. But it is what it is. And then those seniors, a lot of them look at housing prices and they feel obligated to help their kids and grandkids. Some of them, I they heard. They feel wealthy, right? They, they see that, that, yeah. that, that, uh, uh, that, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Kelly? That, that, that that value in their home that they've built the over equity, years, exactly, the equity, pardon exactly. me, they see it there and they think of it, well, that's my personal wealth. Right. And sometimes they even get um, kind of pushed by the kids, like, hey, you need to help because we're going to inherit that anyway, so you should be helping with that. So there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. That's why it's so important that you have a professional on your side. You sit down with someone like a certified financial planner. It is never too late to do that, to crunch the numbers, because um, the Encore career can be a really cool thing. I'm talking to so many people across the country and they're like, what is this? What does that mean? And it's someone who maybe was a laborer their whole life and now they're spending three or 4000 to invest in photography equipment, but they're making some money from it. And Or, you know, um, I had one who was a surgeon and he's now going back to pastry school because he wants to become a pastry chef and he's like 75. How cool is that, right? Like, 
you know, you can have some fun. It doesn't have to be like, I have to work because I didn't save enough. That doesn't have to be the conversation. And if you think about it, guys, from 65 to 75, you're still got a lot of spunk. You've got a lot of learning in you. You've got like, and then you've got this wealth of um, experience that you can help mentor and do so many things for people. And if you can just earn even a third of what you earned during your working years, wow, that could make or break your retirement and mean that maybe you'd be debt free, mean that you'd have money to last right till your last day. Um, so sit down with a pro and figure out like, what's your cash flow? You want to have lots of, you know, you want to have money and experiences when you're early on in your retirement. Um uh, you know, but hey, I sit here and maybe with technology we'll be living to 130. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but then that just that's right. I can't I, afford to live that long. Exactly, exactly. So, but I mean, the takeaway at the end of the day is that it, nothing is the norm anymore. There's just no pensions. There's no you know guarantee out there that's that's um, that was like it was in the old days. So you've really got to figure out what what's right for your situation. Kellykeen.com is the website. She is an award-winning author of how many. Books was it, Greg? Nine. Nine. Personal finance educator, consumer advocate for financial standards planning council, and uh, one of our top five favorite guests, as Greg pointed out. And hopefully, we'll see you again soon, Miss Keen. You know it. Raymond Cormier, as we've been telling you this morning and yesterday afternoon on CJOB, a free man after he was acquitted of second degree murder in the death of 15 year old Tina Fontaine. Grief and anger spilled out of the courtroom after the verdict was read late yesterday afternoon. Global News reporter Diana Foxall was inside. The courtroom was tense as family, friends, media, the jury, the accused, and the judge filed in to hear the verdict. Thelma Favel, Tina Fontaine's great aunt, entered the room with her hand over her mouth, sobbing, sitting down in the front row. The courtroom fell silent as members of the gallery waited to hear the designated juror announce their decision. As soon as she read not guilty, Favel gasped loudly and began crying inconsolably. As family members and supporters rushed to comfort her, Tina's mother Valentina Duck ran out of the courtroom, flipping Cormier her middle finger and yelling angrily at the now free man. Cormier showed no emotion as the verdict was read and in the moments after, as he had throughout the trial. But the teen's family was heartbroken, hugging one another and praying as Thelma cried for Tina, whom she had raised since the girl was four years old. Justice Glenn Joyal thanked the members of the jury for their service, but told them never to speak of how they came to their decision to acquit Cormier of second-degree murder. Thelma's sobs could be heard from down the hallway as everyone left the courtroom, and a half-empty box of Kleenex sat abandoned in the front row. We're joined now by MLA for Point Douglas, Bernadette Smith. Her sister, Claudette Osborne, has been missing from Winnipeg since 2008. Bernadette is also the co-founder of both the Manitoba Coalition of Families of Missing and Murdered Women in Manitoba and the Drag the Red Initiative. Good morning, uh, Ms. Smith. We appreciate your time very much this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. The reaction to this uh, to this decision by the jury was quick. It was emotional. Where were you? How did you find out the decision of the jury yesterday? Uh, I attended the court hearing, you know, to hear the verdict and to be there to support uh, Tina's family. Wasn't surprised, you know, with uh, the amount of um, information and evidence that they had. We know that, uh, you know, water washes away evidence. That's why we've been combing it for the last four years, because we believe that, you know, Tina's body is not the only body that 
is in that river. We know that there was Felicia Solomon Osborne's body. Parts of her body, her arm and leg, were recovered from that body, from that river, just steps away from where Tina was found. And then also Miranda Anderson, her body was recovered from the Assiniboine River. So, you know, it's a prime place for people to to be, you know, putting things that they don't want people to find. And we've pulled up so many um, things, you know, that are weighted down with, with um, cinder blocks that are wrapped in stuff. We've recovered a rifle from there that was used in a, an armed robbery. So, you know, people are putting it in there for a reason. Now, Bernadette... Uh... MKO Grand Chief Sheila North Wilson said the the person who did commit this crime is still out there. So knowing that, knowing that the person who committed this act is still out there, how do we heal from this, knowing that justice uh, has not yet been served? Well, I think we can't stop investigating Tina's case. Definitely not. You know, someone was brought to to court they were you know found not guilty which means someone's still out there that's responsible possibly you know preying on other young girls because we know women are still continuing to go missing and someone's responsible for this so someone's walking whether it's one person or many persons and i think it's our duty as you know a province as a city to continue to make sure that uh, justice is served not only for tina but for all the other families that are waiting for answers as well. You know, we have many missing missing persons whose families don't have any answers. We have families who their loved ones have been murdered that have no idea who murdered them. And I think we just need to continue to push for justice, to push for um, more resources within the police system to be able to um, investigate these cases because... When my sister's case was investigated, it was 10 days before they actually started, you know, probing into her case and, and going out and, and seeking information. And that's a long time, and that's a lot of uh, evidence that was, that was lost in those 10 days. So we need to ensure that our systems do better, especially when we're looking at, you know, policing. They had had contact with her. The healthcare system, when she went there, you know, they had um, called CFS, who had picked her up, who had dropped her off at a hotel. And, you know, she she was just failed on so many levels. And we as a society need to look at these, look at everyone in humanity as if they're our own relative and start to care for one another and change our attitudes on how, you know, we we interact and how we support one another and that we're not turning a blind eye to say like well I'm not indigenous that doesn't affect me or I'm not a woman that doesn't affect me I don't live in that area of the city that doesn't affect me or even going uh, to the place of dehumanizing and and we saw that in Tina's case when the headlines were like she was intoxicated she had this in her system you know and this was a little 14 year old girl This was someone's daughter, someone's niece, and we need to start having compassion for one another and stop, stop the othering and really uh, become upstanders for one another and take care of one another and, and help one another.
MLA. But this doesn't continue to happen. Sorry for the interruption there, uh, Bernadette. MLA for Point Douglas is Bernadette Smith. She joins us now. And I can only uh, look back on the night, uh, the evening of the day that Tina's uh, body was discovered in the ri- river and think back to the thousands, the hundreds uh, upon hundreds of, of Winnipeggers, of Manitobans, of, of Indigenous and non-Indigenous descent alike that 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 attended that vigil on the on the shores of the Red River at Alexander Docks, and how overwhelming it was to see that outpouring of of love, of almost a, a demand for for action in a, in a very quiet fashion. And I think that the time comes where we need to come together and realize uh, Tina may have been indigenous, but uh, she was, after all, a 15-year-old little girl. Absolutely, and I think that's the message we need to to send to people, that we're all humans. We're, we all have a right to live a violent, free life. We all have a, uh, you know, a duty to one another to help one another and not turn a blind eye. You know, when we started Drag the Red, it was because of Tina. You know, we wanted the police to search the red, but we recognize that they don't have the resources to be able to do that, uh, the amount of time we're able to put in. You know, when families contact us whose loved ones have gone into the river, and we've been able to help recover bodies and bring loved ones home. So, you know, we, we're going to continue that this year. This year will be our fifth year. And, you know, that works in honour of Tina, but it's also in honour of all of the, the families who are going through this, who all, who have, you know, don't have justice for whatever reason. And, you know, we're we're in an age of reconciliation, and we've heard this many times, that in order for reconciliation to happen, we actually have to have action behind it. It's just a word if there's nothing attached to it. So, you know, we as Canadians need to really take that uh, that word seriously and look at what things we can do to ensure that this violence is stopping. Bernadette, you mentioned justice, yeah, and and there's another word that comes to my mind, and 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 you mentioned also reconciliation. The word that jumps out for me is is closure. And for so many, uh, the the tragic murders and the murder trials that we've seen over the years across our country, uh, victims' families will say, "We got closure today. They had the ability to to a to to lay their loved one to rest, but also to to understand that someone was held accountable for taking that person's life." And I don't know if we can uh, overestimate the value of closure uh, to a family, to a community. Absolutely. I mean, we see this with Tina's case, right? They don't have, someone's not been brought to justice. And we look, it was such a high profile case. And if there was any case that needed to be solved by the Winnipeg police, that was this case. Because it got international attention, you know, people were watching this. They really um, um, connected with this young girl and you started to see people at you know, events that you've never seen before. And I remember coming back to Winnipeg because I was on holidays and rushing back to be a part of the, the walk, the march from Alexander Docks to to Odena. And I remember, you know, this overwhelming feeling of emotion because I'd just seen so many people that I'd never, ever seen at one of these before. And I remember thinking, wow, people are starting to get it. Like they're really starting to to see that this could possibly be them. Like that it just because, you know, you live um, 
in certain areas or certain ways doesn't mean that that can't happen to you. That can happen to anyone. You know, we've heard that uh, women have been, let's say, at a bar and left the bar and then never to be seen again. And when I think about closure, you know, I don't think families ever really have closure because, you know, their loved one's been taken through tragedy. They, you know, they don't get to see them, you know, grow up, perhaps have children, perhaps be married, you know, those types of things. So you're always constantly wondering what what would life be like if they were still here? And, you know, you... You hold on to that. You hold on to the memories, but you also think about what could have been. Bernadette Smith, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. MLA for Point Douglas, co-founder of both the Manitoba Coalition of Families of Missing and Murdered Women in Manitoba and the Drag the Red Initiative. We have many broadcasting titans in this building and a text message coming in from somebody about an hour ago saying... Hey, that Bob Irving sounds great. I think he'll go far in the radio business. <laughs> well, I'll go far out the door here at 1230 today. I know that. <laughs> that was, I told my neighbor to send that in, by the way. <laughs> so modest. Bob, it's great to have you around. What did you think of a hockey game this morning? I mean, we had you in here for having coffee talking, and I said, one nothing Germany mm. after the first period, and you looked me square in the eye, yeah. and what did you say? I don't remember. You, what said, it's only, <laughs> you said it's only the first period. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I did say mm-hmm. Well, it was only the first period. And then it was 3 nothing, and then it was 3-1, and then it was 4-1, and then it was 4-3. It was an exciting third period as Canada roared back and the Germans kind of sat back on their lead. It's just totally predictable. Um, but it just uh, didn't end the way the Canadians hoped it would, and you have to give Germany credit. They played a very good game. Uh, it's the second time in 30 international meetings that Germany has beaten Canada, either at the World Championship or Olympic level. The second time in 30 meetings. Wow. So you can imagine what this means to Germany. And never mind that it wasn't NHLers. It's still Canadian hockey players who are re- respected around the world. So, uh, yeah. And, and the guy who scored the first goal for Germany is a Winnipegger, Brooks Masek. I remember he was an outstanding a uh, minor hockey player here, and he's been playing in Germany for five years. He leads the German league in scoring. There forever. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Carl Friesen, I think, was his yeah, name. Yeah. Was the national the goalie. goalie for Germany, right? Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. uh, you had uh, you had a, a Manitoban who was their head coach for a long time, Ralph yes. Kruger, right? Ralph Kruger, yeah. So we we suffer under the weight of expectation with some of these sports, curling and hockey in particular. I think you know we expect our hockey players to be in the medals at the very least. We expect our curlers to do the same thing. And then when we don't, we're, we're kind of stunned. What happened? Well, th- these hockey players we sent did their best. They did their level best, and they got beat today. Hey, they'll play in the bronze medal game. Um, our curlers did their very best, but they did not play very well, and so they lost. The good teams. That's what they get for not sending Manitoban teams there all the way. There you go. There's the solution. I didn't want to say it, Brett, but that's the solution. Send Jennifer Jones and Mike McHugh and Arik or others every year, and we don't have to worry. Exactly. <laughs> just very, very simple solution. Hey, uh, it feels as though uh, the CFL season is, is far away because there's still snow on the ground, but it's really not. It's starting yeah. to creep up on us here. And uh, CFL week coming up March 22nd to the 25th. 
And uh, you also have a Bomber Winter Special coming up Monday night. Yeah, we did this uh, about a month ago. We had our uh, Bomber Winter Special uh, from 7 to 9 on a Monday night, and it went very well. We got a lot of great feedback uh, from it. So we thought we'd do the same thing again. We're going to do it this Monday, two hours, 7 to 9. I'll be joined by Mike O'Shea, Kyle Walters, a bunch of players, uh, some coaches, and we'll just talk Bombers for two hours. You know, I think Bomber fans kind of like getting a smorgasbord of Bomber talk uh, every now and then, especially in the off season when you get snippets of information, but no kind of detailed discussion about the club. So we'll look at what they've done in free agency, what they might still do before training camp, talk to some of the new players they've they've added. And uh, Doug Brown and Eddie Tate will join me for a little half-hour roundtable hot stove session at the end of the show. So we'll have some fun on Monday night talking well, football. We had Nick Densky on Breakfast with the Bombers on I Tuesday. Heard him. I hope to have him on Monday too. Yeah. Well, you know, he was already on with us, so <laughs> contract off. I know, yeah. it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a downer for him, but I'll try yeah. to talk him into yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> well, okay. Good luck with that, Bob. I think Nick Dembski has star quality. I, I don't want to put any pressure on him, but man, he was such a brilliant player at the U of M. Uh, he, I don't think he got as much of a chance to play in Saskatchewan as he'd like, but he's going to get every opportunity here. And if he can stay healthy, he's a talented young guy. Now, in spite of your lineage and where you were born, you know how I feel about Saskatchewan. I, I have a hard time liking anything from Saskatchewan. So when Dembski went to the Rough Riders, it really hurt me, but in another way as well, because Saskatchewan, for a long time, has done a really good job of 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 signing, drafting, and keeping Saskatchewan-born players on the roster. Now, that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean they're the best players. No. Sometimes it works out that way, but there has been a genuine commitment to that over the history of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, fair to say, Bob? Yeah, and, and it's a nice touch that uh, Dembski's coming home to play, and Keenan LaFrance is coming home to play, and Andrew Harris came home to play. I, I think, you know, I think you try to get the best players. That's what you do with every team. Uh, but if you can get some local guys, it just adds to it. So, uh, you know, these are nice moves at the bottom. To get made. an extra box, you know, uh, if, if you're, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll give him an extra half a point because he's, you know, Oak Park Raider alum or something like that. Do, does, does that count in the in the whole overall scheme no. of things if no. you're the general manager? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, would for me. But, okay, anyway. yeah. Hey Bob, one it's of the nice things though. that I'm just as I that I've noticed as the emails come in from Darren Cameron from the Blue Bombers, uh, particularly with some of the higher profile signings that the Bombers have made, is that it's one year contract, one yeah. year contract, one year contract. As as someone who has you know, it's no secret I'm not the big sportsing guy, but to me that almost sounds like a team that's on a mission, even more so than usual to try to lock it down. Am I reading too much into the fact that it's just one-year contracts? Well, no, but it's more the nature, Brett, of the way things have gone in the Canadian Football League with their collective bargaining agreement with the players. And there's no option year in these contracts. If you're a veteran, you can sign a one-year deal. And this is what players are doing. It's a player initiative to sign the one-year deal so that if they have a great year, now they're a free agent again right away after just one year. And assuming the salary cap will go up, and a lot of the players are assuming that, then there will be more money available for all the players. So this is why you're seeing a lot of the one-year contracts. Players are, they can play one year, and again, if it's a good year, now they've increased their market value and they can cash in again. 
Well, so I would, you know, CFL players don't have guaranteed contracts. No, they don't. And no. so we've got a player who's a free agent right now because he was due a signing bonus. We're talking about Enoch Mwamba, who right. was released by Saskatchewan. Could this be a conversation in the next contract negotiation, Bob? Hey, look. You are in the habit, Canadian Football League teams, of cutting our players 12 hours before they're due a sizable six-figure bonus. Mm -hmm. You give us uh, no-cut contracts for certain players. Say you have a signing bonus involved, and we'll give you back a minimum two-year contract. Is there going to be some of that in play here? Well, there'll be some discussion about that. Whether or not the players can win that one, Greg, I would doubt it. Uh, If the Canadian Football League gets in a position where they have to guarantee some of these contracts. That puts them in a really precarious position. We all know that the CFL is not uh, sort of overloaded with cash. And and I might point out that the National Football League has the same deal. Oh, 100%. They cut a lot of their players in the offseason when big bonuses are due. So it's not unique to the CFL. I'm not sure why. As a player, I wouldn't take a contract like Enoch Mwamba or Darius Bowman took where you do $120,000 bonus in February. I mean, you know, chances are you're not going to get it, pal. So I don't know why they'd even take a contract like that. I'd say, here's what I want. And I want it up front. That's the argument I'd have if I'm a player. I want some signing bonus money. And a lot of players ask for that and get it. Right. Uh, but the deferred sort of payment is the one that uh, I'd be leery about. A little about. precarious. But the whole discussion between the players and the league is going to be intriguing because the CBA is up this year, at, at the end of this year. Right. And the players are going to push hard for more of the kinds of things you're talking about. Now, uh, a celebration of Canadian football is coming to Winnipeg, March right. 22nd and the 25th. This was in Regina last year, and it was right. a re- resounding success. Uh, I don't expect anything less here in Winnipeg. Just give us an overview before we let you go okay, what so that is. It'll start on the 22nd of March where they'll announce the inductees into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame this year. There'll be a big celebration uh, at the Pinnacle Club at Investors Group Field. And then on the 23rd through the 25th, they're going to have all sorts of things at the convention center. A fan fest. They're going to lay out a big football field there. 50 of the top players from the league will be here. The fans will have a chance to get autographs, talk to them. And, of course, media from across the country will be here as well. It's just an off-season celebration of Canadian football, a chance to put the league back in the limelight. It was a great idea. They did it in Regina last year, and we'll top them this year because anything Regina can do... God knows we can do it better. Oh, he's a Manitoban now. Yeah. His birth certificate <laughs> might say Saskatchewan, but there's no question where his loyalties lie now. Bob, you know no how much question. we you know how much we care about you here. Hey, great to have you in the building this great. morning. We all have to be from somewhere. That, fair enough. <laughs> I've been down that road too. That's a topic and a, for conversation for another day. Bob Irving, the one, the only. Thank you, sir. Okay, guys. Bomber Winter Special Monday at seven o'clock here on six eighty CJOB. Oh, Great way to end the week. No kidding. Thank you, Jerry. Sorry about the uh, 68 caller thing. Forgive me? Clearly, I'll you think do. About it. You clearly, or you wouldn't play Age of Electric for me. I haven't played Van Halen today, have I? I was going to say it, but I. am going to say it, buddy. <laughs> you kind of teed him up for that oh, one. Oh, man. <laughs> it is all like Donkey Kong, Jerry Richardson. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, and uh, another titan of broadcasting. We've got Hal Anderson, Bob Irving, and Kathy Kennedy in the building all in one day. What? You know what? Don't be throwing the titan word around like that. Why not? Too much pressure. You you can't handle it? You cannot put me. Can't handle it? No. No? You're going to fold like an accordion? Are you kidding me? So we're going to go, what, dead air? 10 to 1 today or what? You can't handle it? I could go for breakfast. Did you want to drink first? (laughs) Sure. (laughs)
<laughs> I can't get over. I'm sitting here. You guys, you two are like uh, figure skating analysts extraordinaire here. You're both well, talking about uh, now here's twizzles a, and, and well, all, here's a little family. Here's a little family sharing for you. I was a uh, I was a free dance champion in my day. I know. Really? In Brandon. <laughs> Look at back in Brandon. Oh, really? That's neat. Back in the Brandon <laughs> no, days. I don't believe it. It's just as neat. No, I know. It's hard to believe, McGarry. No. Trust me. I no, know. It's just neat. You learn something new every day, as they say. Yes, indeedy. Cool. Well, good for you. Where did you compete? Uh, all over southern Manitoba. Right yeah. on. Got some... Got some medals along the way. Elgin. Did you go to the uh, world-famous Elgin No, arena? I Let's see. I did Killarney and Fox Warren and Brandon and uh, Portage. Balder. Ball, no, didn't do Balder. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the tin cans that I played <laughs> hockey in over the years. Really? So it'd be colder inside than it was outside. Yes, we right? had to remember, Brandon, we had the UCT uh, Arena, yeah. which was also known as Barn 4 <laughs> during the Ex- summer, exactly. summer fair, right? And yeah. basically, it was just a windbreak. It would be minus 30 outside and minus 37 inside. It, oh, was, wow. it just trapped the cold, <laughs> essentially. But you know what, Greg? That's what made us who we are today. Absolutely. Is this Van Halen out here? It's Van Halen Sharon. It's Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, Find the Glass, Jerry Shandley Vidal. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. Well,